Well, some of you may know me that I'm kind of anal about my lawn. I'm not the get off my lawn guy, but I am the guy that cuts my own grass and I want to make sure the lines are perfectly straight and that I take so much pleasure in it throughout the week, just looking at the lines. And then next week I cut it the other way, you know, so it looks like a baseball field. But, you know, for the first time in all the years, we've never had a sprinkler system. I've always moved the hose with sprinklers until this year we finally got an irrigation system. But this week, we had a company, Mediacom, uh, come through and lay a bunch of wire through our neighborhood, and they had to dig up my lawn. I mean, literally, I don't know, here's a picture here. I looked out the window and took a picture, but they are digging up my, there's a deep hole. And I thought to myself, they're going to hit my sprinkler system. And so anyway, I was looking out and making sure, and uh, eventually, I saw them with buckets getting water out of the hole, and I knew they hit the sprinkler system. But they didn't speak. I went out, and they didn't speak a lick of English, and I don't speak a lick of Spanish. And I remembered that Brad, the guy, one of the guys in the booth back there, just got back from a lifelong trip to, I mean, lifetime trip to Italy, and he said how incredible the Google app was. that He could just point to signs in Italy, and it would translate it into English and you could have somebody, you could say something, and then it would, somebody could say something, you could translate with each other on the phone. So I thought, well, I'm going to try that. So instead of going out there and yelling and pointing and all this kind of stuff in language nobody can understand, trying to speak louder because you think to be understood, uh, I decided to do this. And I went out and spoke, and I said, did you cut my sprinkler system? And then he read it, and then he spoke, and he said, yes, but we fixed it. Anyway, we did this for about a minute. And then we were having a great conversation. I finally said, isn't this cool? And he goes, yeah, you know. And it, was, uh, it could have been a lot worse. It actually became kind of a cool moment. My wife and I went out and took you know, Gatorade to them the next you know, few hours and stuff. And we just kind of became a, a bridge-building kind of moment. They did fix it, after all, when they left. My sprinkler system worked, so I was really happy. Let's close in prayer. No. Uh, but when I think about the weird stuff that Jesus does on what we call Palm Sunday. Now, Palm Sunday is never in the Bible. That's a term that we've called it uh, because they you know, brought palm branches out and stuff like that. But there is this kind of triumphal entry that Jesus does, but it doesn't quite fit. And he's not coming in on a big horse like a warrior king would. He's coming in on a donkey and it's kind of, it's yeah, but you have to squint. And you know, it's all these weird things that he does, but what he's doing is he's He's translating who he is by those who know what we call the Old Testament. By those who knew their Bible in their day, they could see this is, this is the Messiah. What he's doing is what the Bible says the Messiah is going to do. And so the people start saying messianic things about him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosianna to the son of David. These are all Messiah things they say in Psalm 118, and they're saying it to Jesus. And so Jesus is, is translating for us, and, and we kind of see this happen then at a whole new level when the, well, let's just pick it up. We looked at it a little earlier in here, but let's pick it up in Matthew 21, 14. Jesus went to the temple when he came into Jerusalem, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus spent most of his time up in Galilee, so it's not usual that he's here doing this stuff in Jerusalem and of course, he's going to die this week for doing it in Jerusalem. It's a dangerous place to do it for him. And it says, but when the chief priests, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and the scribes, these are religious leaders of Jesus' day, they would, they would copy, they would make these copies of what we call the Old Testament. They were scribes for the scriptures. 
and they knew the scriptures really well, but it says when they saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, it says they became, they were indignant and they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Like, how do you tolerate, how can you do this? How can you be a righteous man and let these kids say these Bible verses to you as if you're the Messiah? What the kids were doing, as kids would do, when Jesus was in the temple, all the, they heard earlier all the adults when he was coming into Jerusalem, laying down their palm branches and all this kind of stuff, they heard the adults yelling, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So as kids do, they're just continuing that. They liked it. They're continuing that as they follow Jesus around and it's driving these guys nuts. And so they said, don't you, do you hear what they're saying? And here's what Jesus says. He says, yeah, yes. Have you never read? Have you not read your Bible? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And it goes on. And well, what happens there is that, that, that Jesus is, they had to go nuts because what Jesus is doing is quoting from Psalm 8, which is one of the Bible's greatest hits. If they're upset with people saying messianic things to Jesus and him being okay with that, the verse that Jesus quotes saying, yeah, I'm completely fine with it, haven't you read, is a verse that is gonna make them not only mad, but it's a verse that's going on steroids, Jesus' claim of who he is and why he came. Because here's what Psalm 8, verse one through three says. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your, now pay attention to the you and your. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. This is the creator of the universe. And this goes on, it says, through the praise, this is the verse Jesus quotes, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger, the, the praise of God. You have done this. And then in the next verse says, when I consider your heavens, you own everything, you own the creation, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So here's what the thing, is that Jesus is not only accepting this messianic praise of these kids and saying, yeah, that, they're doing the right thing. He's also, by quoting the verse here in Psalm 8 saying that, that and it's, I, I'm, I'm the, the, these verses are not just about God, I'm taking the praise. The praise of God in Psalm 8 verse 2 is praise of me. I'm the God of the universe. And they didn't miss it. Because again, like I said, Jesus is going to die this week. But when you understand what Jesus just said, quoting from Psalm 8 and taking these verses and applying them to himself, Jesus says, keep that in mind that he's the creator of the universe when you read these verses again. Let's look at, you have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. 
See, what Jesus is saying without actually saying it is that this is, this is who Jesus is. But we have to read the translation. We have to catch what he's saying. That Jesus created the entire universe. That psalm that Jesus is quoting was, writ- quoted, was written a thousand, more than a thousand years before Jesus lived by, by David. When David lived, he could see the stars in the universe, and it was more than we can see now because of pollution. He saw the Milky Way. He saw all these stars. It was an amazing thing. And so he was just amazed that God has set his glory in the heavens. When I look at your heavens and I consider the work of your hands, the stars that you have set in place, David was amazed. Now, all these years, 3,000 years later, we've got probes out in space, we've got telescopes out in space, we got great telescopes on earth, and we know a lot more about our universe than David knew. And we know a lot of the things that David thought were stars were actually galaxies. And galaxies are these massive things that have, over, that have hundreds of billions of stars. Our sun is a star, not a big one, kind of an average one, maybe a little smallish. But galaxies have hundreds of billions of suns in them. Now, when I say billions, that goes in one ear and out the other. So let me make it, if you were going to count to one billion, it would take you 11,574 days just to count to one billion. A galaxy has 200 and more billion stars. We can't see our own galaxy the way we see other galaxies because we're inside our own galaxy. Here's a picture here. It's a cool picture, right? And here's a picture of looking at the disk of our galaxy. You can tell that we're on the outer edge of our galaxy. We're a small solar system on a really small planet in a galaxy on the outer edge. And this galaxy has hundreds of billions of stars. But you know what? Whoop-de-doo. There are hundreds and billions of galaxies. So when you take one of these telescopes and you look out in space, here's a galaxy, here's a galaxy, here's a galaxy, here's a galaxy. There's all these galaxies and even this new James Webb telescope and they had a picture of a star that was like 12 billion light years away, but you can see all these galaxies behind it. And you know what? They said there are over 200 billion galaxies in the universe. Track with me here. 200 billion galaxies, each having 200 and plus billion stars But here's the thing. We know the distances of these things because for the light to get here from these galaxies, it's had to travel, some of them, 12 billion years. Now, here's the thing. The speed of light travels at 186,000 miles per second. Every second, light travels 186,000 miles. And it's taken billions of years for the light to get here. It's incomprehensible how big the universe is. Now, the God that created this universe, what Psalm 8 is saying is that this universe, this universe, whatever the vastness is, whatever the glory is, whatever the physics are, is just a, a finite picture of the infinite creator, a picture of his intelligence a picture of his wisdom, a picture of his power, a picture of his glory, his beauty, a picture of his grandiose desires for largesse, 
It's a picture of every attribute of God in some way. Whatever box you have God in in your mind, we all kind of have God in a box. Well, I think God should do this. I think if he loved me, he'd do this. I think if his plan for me was good, he'd do this. I think if I were God, I'd do this. Just stop. It's like, like we said before, an ant trying to understand the internet. We're not gonna understand the God that created this universe. We can't fill in the rest of the sentence without sounding silly. But here's what Jesus is saying. When you look at the universe, when we look at the universe, we're seeing a picture of Jesus. We're seeing a picture of the one who rode a donkey in that day and is talking to these guys. In our day, we look at the vastness of the universe and somehow we think, at least atheists think, as some sort of scientific discovery that Christianity can't be true. So you'll hear atheists like Richard Dawkins make the claim that the universe kind of shows that Christianity can't be true. I saw a tweet the other day from a group called Atheist Forum, and uh, it says this, Christianity, belief that one God created the universe 13.7 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, one year equals approximately 0.6 trillion miles, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. Laugh out loud. Now, they kind of slip something in your drink here because the Bible never says God created the entire universe only to have a personal relationship with you. That's not ever anything the Bible says, so that's whoop-de-doo. But what the point is, what they're saying is, I mean, do you really think the God that couldn't create a universe this vast with stars that are hundreds of galaxies, 100 billion stars, 100 billion solar systems. 100 billion, it's ridiculous to think that that God that's created all this really cares about a person on the most, one of the most insignificant planets on the outer edge of one of 200 billion galaxies. Does God really care about what's going on in your life? Does he really have a plan for you? Is he really aware of all the events in your life? It's not the first time somebody's asked that question. David asked the question 3,000 years ago because the next verse in the psalm asked the question. So he, let's start where we kind of left off. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, he says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. What David is saying is he's asking, is when I look at the glory of the universe, I mean, really, I, uh, is, who am I that you're mindful of me? Now, he's not asking the question in the doubting kind of way that we looked at before with that tweet. He's asking the question in more of a paradoxical kind of way is, that doesn't make any sense. The God that created this universe cares about everything in my life is focused on me, is aware of, of me. And then he goes on, he says in verse eight, or verse five, he says, you have made human beings a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Now these are amazing words, right? For human beings, glory, honor, crown, rulers, everything. What he's talking about here is paradox. 
When I look at the glory of everything that you made, even when I think of the glory of spiritual angelic beings, and yet somehow we're lower than them, and yet you've crowned us with glory and honor, and that we are rulers and crowned with rulers over everything? David's talking here about paradox because, see, God loves paradox. That, 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 that God loves all the kind of... If you look at the Bible, one thing that's consistent is that God loves paradox. Jesus talked about paradoxes all the time. He would say things like, uh, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. The greatest among you is the least among you. Uh, humble yourself and you'll be exalted. Exalt yourself and you'll be humbled. Jesus is always pointing out how what looks like the most insignificant becomes ultimately the most significant. And so that's why Jesus picks this verse. He's not just pointing to Psalm 8, because he could have talked about verse 1 if he wanted to. He pointed to Psalm 8, verse 2, because the kids were praising Jesus. They wanted them to shut them up, and he says, no, it's always been this paradox. That verse in that, par- in that whole psalm talking about the grandeur of God's majesty over creation, but it's in the praise of infants and children that he establishes a stronghold against his enemies? That's a paradox. The children overcome God's enemies? Huh? Now here's what Jesus is doing in quoting that verse. He's answering David's question. Who are we? Who am I? The God that created the wonder of this universe is mindful of me? And Jesus' answer to the question is, yeah, me. You see, do you think it's a paradox that the God that created this universe is aware of every detail in your life? It is. Here's a bigger paradox. The God that created the universe was born into a human being in an animal shelter and lived in poverty in an occupied country and became somebody who rode in on a donkey so that he could be arrested and let himself be arrested and let himself be tried before idiots and let himself be beaten by idiot soldiers and let himself be crucified and die. That's the ultimate paradox. The God that created the hundreds of billions of galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars, it doesn't make any sense that he would become one of us and die because he wanted to break through the other side of death for us because taking our sin upon himself, taking death itself upon himself and defeating death by breaking through the other side and rising from the dead, that's the ultimate paradox. And it's what Jesus says proves that God is mindful of you, that you fill God's mind. God is mindful of you. You, It doesn't make any sense. It's a paradox. But the fact that God became human in the person of Jesus to die on the cross and rise from the dead for you shows that God is, you are full of God's, God's mind is full of you. And the resurrection proves it. And that's why the apostles wrote the New Testament because they wouldn't stop proclaiming the resurrection because over a period of 40 days, Jesus kept appearing to them in his resurrected body and they were so convinced that all of them died because they wouldn't stop proclaiming that they were executed for it. And that's how Christianity 
exploded onto the scene. So if you want to mock the idea that God is mindful of you by looking at the vastness of the universe, you've got to have an explanation for the resurrection. Because that's the ultimate paradox. That's why the New Testament picks up this verse, picks up Psalm 8, and it quotes the verse, what is human beings that you're mindful of us and all this, and it says, you made them a little lower. It's just quoting Psalm 8. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. And then it goes on and it says, in putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, let's be honest, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. See, Genesis 1, 26 through 28 says that God created his image to rule over his creation. He had this paradoxical plan that he made us lower than the spiritual beings, but that we would rule over his creation. That's what Psalm 8 is talking about. But Hebrews 2 is saying, but that's not what we see. Instead, we see war. We can't even govern ourselves. We see oppression. We see that we are our own worst enemy. We see greed. We see poverty. We see disease, we see suffering, and then after all that, we see death. It doesn't look very rule over creationist to me, the author of Hebrews says. Sin has entered this world and ruined the plan. We don't see it. But then he says this, but we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. See, he became human. This is the paradox. He himself, the God that created this universe, was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death in bringing many sons to glory, just like we just got done singing. See, the whole plan has always been that God still has this plan to crown you with glory and honor and to have you have this sense of being ruler over everything in his creation and that Jesus became the son of man. Jesus became the human in order to bring back this plan of God that he has for you. But here's the thing. All that's this future idea and that is the bigger story your life is in and you can help understand your life by understanding the bigger story. But we often think that Christianity and our faith in God is about the future and it is. But here's the thing. Your connection with God is always in the present. It's always in the present moment, the very present moment, the very present moment is when you connect with God. Because the very first verse of Psalm 8, it's that term, Lord. If you have an English Bible, they'll tell you at the beginning that when you see in your Old Testament, capital L-O-R-D, that's, that's just translating the Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, which was Hebrew for he is. Most often referred to term for God in the Old Testament, more than the word God. He is was God's name. Lord, Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name? He is. He is, is always in the present tense. He is, is the source of all being. He is, is the giver of all life. He is, is the one who inhabits eternity. But the very tense of he is, is always in the present tense because God is always connected in the present moment with you. It's always in the present moment. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 6, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, 
and pray to your father who is unseen. The God that created this entire universe just wants to be alone with you and he wants you to think of yourself and he wants you to use your imagination to see yourself alone with him, just you and him. He is infinitely focused on you. This universe is a picture of his infinite focus on you without being any less focused anywhere else. He's infinite. He is present with you without being any less present anywhere else. He's infinite. Jesus says, when you come to God in that moment, it's just you and God. The last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew were, I'm with you always. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? I mean, connect the dots. Let this be a translation for you. The God that created this universe, the spirit of God that spoke the universe into existence, however he did it, is residing in your body right now. Present with you in this moment. See, the universe is this finite picture of God's infinite love for you. As vast as the universe is, even infinitely beyond that is God's love for you. Imagine that. This finite universe, as vast as it is, is just a finite picture of God's infinite plan for your life, this glory in bringing men and many sons and daughters to glory. That's his will for you. That's going to happen in Christ. But here's what it also means. The verse Jesus quoted shows us it's, it's our worship of God in the moment. It's our worship of God in the moment that is our greatest stronghold against our enemies. Your enemies of lust, your en- enemies of worry, your enemies of anxiety, your enemies of greed, the dark enemies that we face in life, the greatest stronghold in this moment in our lives against all God's enemies in our lives is this moment of worship of God. Understanding who Jesus really is for you. All that God really is for you in Christ. So let's do that now. Let's worship God.